1: Hello folks, apologies for the um, slightly nasal interlude, um, because I am rather full of flu, as you can tell, from the incoherence of this comment. Just a quick reminder, the lovely folks at Hellion have um, given us a discount code that you can enjoy on Glory is Fleeting, the book... From which um, the chapter that Gary is talking about in this podcast is based. If you head to hellion.co.uk, select Glory is Fleeting, add it to your basket, and then add Glory 23, that is Glory G L O R Y 23, at checkout, you will be able to enjoy 20% off when you buy Glory is Fleeting. Enjoy. <music>
3: Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod, where today we're going to attempt to do things ever so slightly differently. It's still a podcast and it's still a cracking topic. Um, And what's not different is the focus on many other perspectives on topics that you might think you know very well. So we're going to look at Salamanca, but crucially, we're going to look at it from the French perspective. I am joined by Gary Wills, who is incredibly modest. I'm going to open by saying that. I mean, he doesn't describe himself as a historian, but has written several books, uh, including Wellington's First Battle, which is on Boxtel in 1794. The Men Behind the Memorial, which is a World War I book. It's the wrong war. We don't need to worry ourselves with that. Um, but, you know, if you've got a World War I interest, go and have a read. Wellington at Bay, Villa Muriel, 1812. And his latest book, Throwing Thunderbolts, War of the First Coalition 1792 to 7, which has been the focus of a kind of protracted Twitter kind of stream thread thing, technical term there, um, where every day Gary has been posting about different battles that take place. And it's fantastic. If you like this kind of on this day in history stuff, you're going to love it. So, people, go follow Gary on Twitter. Details are going to be in the uh, descriptor to this episode. But uh, you'll also find him by just searching K Shop Publishing, which is the account that he um, posts under. He's also, though, written a few chapters um, in, and done a whole kind of bunch of research on battles like Boxtel in Ceylon and Toulon. But m- quite recently, he did something on McCune at the Battle of Salamanca. So he and I put our heads together and decided that it would be nice having be having done Salamanca quite to death on this show from the British perspective, to do Salamanca from the French perspective, which is how we're going to do it today. Now, what's different about that? Well, Gary has a series of maps to help us through this. So feel free to continue listening on YouTube. But if you want the images that are going to kind of be key to the discussions that we're going to have over the course of the next however long, you need to head over to youtube search for the napoleonic wars channel and you will then be able to see the video version of this show so that is a shameless plug of sorts but it's one that allows you to get the full experience of this episode and whilst you're there why not whack the like button and subscribe that was a shameless plug um gary sorry about the overly long introduction there great to see you welcome this is your first time on the show i believe how are you
2: doing i'm doing fine it's uh, yeah it's for my first time and it's a great honor uh to get the chance to talk about this uh work uh, which uh, came out of uh, my annual twitter uh rant about uh, uh the 40,000 men in 40 minutes uh, statement
3: yes that very infamous quote um that Tell you what, we'll get to that We'll get to that. <laughs> that, that, that deserves like a whole sort of question in its own right um, Let's start, because a, a lot of what, you're, what you've are what you done on this is about McCune, right yeah. uh, Inevitably we talk a lot about um, Marmont for very obvious reasons um, Ferry gets kind of a passing mention because he gets a horrible death gets cut in half by a cannibal um, We'll also talk about Ferry's last stand as it were uh, i know you've got some really interesting comments on that but mccune one of the divisional commanders at salamanca where does he come from and what what had he done sort of pre-salamanca
2: well i yeah, um, pre the revolution he uh he joined the the pioneer corps and uh he uh, worked his way up to lieutenant um but when the revolution came uh Typical of the man, I think, he enlisted as a grenadier in the first Paris uh, Paris Volunteers, and uh, uh, within a couple of years he was uh, a lieutenant in the 23rd Infantry Regiment, and he progressed through the ranks, and so by the time of the uh, Napoleon's campaigns in 1805 to 1807, he's in uh, Ney's corps and he was a general brigade uh, and fought at Friedland and, um, uh, and also at Elshin and Jena and Eilau. So he had a lot of experience. When Ney went to Spain, McCune went with him, again as a brigade commander, and he got his promotion to general division in Spain when he was uh, given the 5th, uh, division of the Army of Portugal. He's, uh, I, he's, I I rather like him, although I don't know him. Uh, and I, there's a couple of things I like about him. One of his colonels uh, described him uh, as a uh, the sort of man who likes to uh, get up close to the enemy and not watch them from afar because being from afar multiplies the images you see. So he described him as standing, so this is a general division and also a corps commander, standing between his his tirailleurs and his his waiting columns uh, to see what was going on. So this is the sort of guy. The other thing I like about him is that... uh, There are no, that I could find, no portraits of him. And if anybody listening to this knows of a portrait of him, I'd be delighted to hear about it. But there aren't any portraits of him that I can find. And this is probably because he's the sort of guy who would rather uh, go to the Palais Royal and get thrown out of it while gambling uh, than sit in an artist's studio having his portrait painted so he's that sort of guy. He believed uh, in a very aggressive style of warfare, which clearly got him into trouble on more than one occasion. And as I hope I will show, Salamanca is not one of those occasions. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I often feel McCune
3: sort of almost ends up being a footnote in the Salamanca story, but we'll not yeah. now. That's that's yeah. like the reason behind the chapter, right? But... Yeah. Um, yeah, we just sort of go, Thermier and McCune, some things happen, and then we move on. Um, and I think oh, it's actually Tomier, isn't it? Uh, apologies to French listeners for the pronunciation there. But I think there's a, there's a lot of focus on Tomier, perhaps for obvious reasons, and McCune just sort of gets pushed to one side. Yeah, I've found the same issue, trying to find a portrait of the guy, not easy. Yeah. Um, which is is funny for somebody sort of that senior, but perhaps it's a reflection of the fact that he's out in Spain and, as you say, you know, he's he's got better things to do with his time, perhaps, than sit and pose for a portrait. Um, in terms of his personal character, what's he like to actually get on with? Does he end up rubbing people up the wrong way, like so many generals during this period? Or is well,
2: he uh, yeah, I mean, uh, one of the interesting things is his chief of staff... Um, uh, wasn't uh, a big fan of his, um, and uh, felt he tra- uh, treated his subordinates very brusquely, and uh, uh, so yeah, he, he wasn't he, he wasn't popular in that regard, and obviously uh, Marmont uh, didn't like him at all, <laughs> as we shall see. Do you want to talk about that now, or do you want to
3: save uh, that a little bit, um, just kind of that that no, friction no, between the two?
2: Yeah, I think we should uh, probably uh, talk a bit more about how he fits into uh, the Salamanca story okay. um, and uh, so that we know what my baseline was uh, in doing this work. Um, and everybody will have read Oman and Fortescue's accounts of Salamanca, and uh, in those accounts, uh, it's a very simple story Um the uh, Wellington, in a moment of brilliance, uh, sees Thaumière's division parading down the Monte design, decides there's a big enough gap for him to do something, and attacks that division. And then each of the French left-wing divisions are apparently destroyed in turn. Um, the 6th Division uh um by uh, led by Tulpin, and uh, obviously malka division uh the fifth division and so all of these divisions are destroyed and if you um if you read these accounts the uh they're they're said to be streaming towards uh Albert de Tour, and is never to be seen again and uh so Fortescue uh, for example describes them as uh being destroyed for all military purposes, and uh, and and that is uh, um, the story that gets repeated time and time again, and and it culminates in, as we said at the beginning, Napier citing the French, the unknown French officer, who described it as uh, the defeat of forty thousand men in forty minutes, and. Um, I think uh, when you when you take it simply like that, it's sort of the Ladybird book. It's a fairly simple story, um, and uh, as you mentioned earlier on, uh, Ferre uh, uh, got the dubious honour of defending the rear guard, and but he did it alone um, because one of his guys said he did it alone. Uh, so that's the story, the base story that that we start from, um, and uh, I think the um, uh it's a very convincing story uh uh on the screen at the moment is my favorite picture of uh, salamanca which i like to think is shows lieutenant Balthazard of the 66th line uh, bravely defending his eagle against the british cavalry uh, which we will come into more before i go on to say what i think actually happened it is probably worth saying uh what Professor Rory Muir said about McCune uh, in his conclusions. He said, McCune's movements are impossible to reconstruct precisely. And I wanted to make that point because what I'm going to present uh, during this discussion is a whole bunch of weak signals. Uh, because if there were strong signals, Professor, uh, Professor Muir would have seen them. Uh, and uh, and the, and we wouldn't necessarily need to have this discussion, but if you look at it from the French perspective, there are a whole ser- series of things that don't add up. And uh, perhaps I should go on to uh, talk about those uh, as they uh, as they occur to me.
3: I'm glad that you did bring in Rory on this. Um, somebody who uh, folks will know I, I have a great deal of respect for and a lot of love for his work. Um, his book, Salomon Creating Twelve, is, in my opinion, superb. Um, and I particularly love the fact that he is um very frank about the challenges of this. And he not only kind of gives you that standard commentary on the battle, but then also kind of lays all of these sources alongside one another and goes, This is what they say, but they contradict one another and it's it's a mess. And in terms of understanding just how irritating actually history can be sometimes in trying to unpick all of these kind of little knots uh, and trying to work out what is the the reality. Um, it's a really good indication of actually what goes on behind the scenes in the mind of a historian. Um, so I thoroughly recommend that to people. In addition, of course, to Glory is Fleeting, where you will find the chapter uh, which covers uh, what we're talking about today. Um, straight away, though, I, I want to talk about something that's a bit odd in terms of um, the accepted version. And you you alluded to it there, you know, that perception that you've got these two French divisions just sort of casually going for a stroll along the Monte de Zan. Go and stand on the Monte de Zan and then try to imagine an entire division marching along its top. You wouldn't do it. And there's a really good reason why you wouldn't do it. When you get to the end of the Monte de Zan, it's a really steep climb down. So the point has been made to me by um, a fan of the show, um, which in turn comes from Rob Pocock, the, the battlefield guide, that actually there's a possibility they were on both sides of the Monte de Zan, you know, kind of split with the Monte de Zan between them. I'm curious if you've kind of got any thoughts on that and whether you have found any evidence that might lead us to some conclusions one way or the other on, on that problem.
2: Well, I think one of the interesting things is that in um, in uh, Marmont's uh, memoirs, he he talked about um, McCune actually advocating to him that they they attack Wellington, and uh, Marmont dismissed him out of hand. And uh, and the other thing you have to ask yourself about the design, if that where, from where Marmont stood, there were he had two basic options that that day he 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 could try and mount a a serious attack on wellington and he could have sent his divisions around wellington's flank intending to seriously uh, compromise uh, wellington um, if he was going to do that he wouldn't have sent tomies along the top of the monte Arnes where wellington could see them and and the, the so it's fairly clear i think from what he asked tommy has to do that all he was expecting was that as soon as he he sent his uh, his uh, divisions along that uh uh hill hilltop wellington would see them and say right it's time to leave and you know so you know that Turned out to be a massive miscalculation in in the context of how Tom Tommies executed it, and uh, but yes, the the whole geography you know seems to have swallowed up Kurtos uh, like cavalry uh, brigade as well in the whole thing of it. So you know, God knows uh, what what uh, he thought he was doing.
3: It is a mystery that um, we can only scratch our heads at for the moment, yeah. sadly. Um, okay, so let's talk about how you began to notice problems with this version. Um, talk us through sort of the, you've alluded to this or, or, or a little bit already, but I just want to sort of unpick this a little bit further. How did you start to sort of become aware of issues with it? Was it just the simplicity of it? You know, so Tommy men get broken, McCune's men get broken, and then they all just run away, um, which doesn't sound really like the French army that we know, of other campaigns you know this is a force that is consists of incredibly brave men um who fight very well in some cases have multiple battles and campaigns um to to their their name and the idea that they're just going to break and run like raw conscripts perhaps doesn't you know sort of sit well with what you'd expect
2: well i i i came at it um from a slightly different point of view, I, I after I published Wellington's first battle, I I, I was uh demonstrating my war game of boxtel to Carol Deval. And as she left, she said to me, Oh, you should look at Villa Muriel. And uh and I uh, initially thought, well, that would be a nice article in the war games magazine. Well, Eight years later, Wellington at Bay was born. And uh, but as as I said, I, I am Prince. The reason I do this history is for a very trivial reason. I'm a, I'm a war gamer. I like to recreate these things with toy soldiers. And uh, so, when looking at uh, Villa Muriel, coincidentally, it involved McCune's division and leith's division although leith wasn't with them anymore and uh so what i needed to know i needed to know what to paint up to put on the table is mccune's eagles i needed to know what his his um his battalions carried and uh so i started to look at salamanca because it's the obvious place to start it's a you know for all of this sort of thing and um And I read in uh, Oman that Oman makes the point that uh, um, because two of Mukun's regiments, uh, their senior battalions were 4th battalions, he makes the point that they they couldn't have uh, carried eagles um, because following losses of eagles earlier in the empire, uh, Napoleon took them away from all all but the 1st battalion. And uh, so Amand concluded that obviously McCune would only have had two eagles at at Salamanca. Well, he was wrong uh, because he overlooked the fact that, like all armies, the French army has a rule, uh, but actually, to understand it, you have to know what the exceptions are. And in the case of McCune's division, the two uh, two of his regiments, the two that were led by their 4th Battalions, the 66th and the 82nd, uh, were originally garrisoned in the West Indies. The 66th were in Guadeloupe and the 82nd on Martinique. And obviously, I think around 1809, um, the the British took those islands off the French. And those three battalions of each regiment... With their eagles were captured and, and prisoners of war and and so on. What the French did is they recreated the the um, uh, the, the, the 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 regiments, uh, but numbered them four, five, six. In fact, one of them was seventh battalion uh, in both cases, and they gave the fourth battalions uh, uh, an eagle. So this meant that. Um, McCune had four eagles at um, uh, at Salamanca, yes, apparently destroyed by Leith from the front and the uh, heavy cavalry from the flank. He got away with all four of those eagles. So how did that happen, I asked myself. And, uh, of course, Leith did capture an eagle, but it wasn't one of McCune's. It was one of the 7th uh, Divisions. And um, so this immediately uh, uh begged an obvious question um the, the the second um the second bit i needed to know was what guns did um mccune have what, uh, what was his divisional artillery like so again go back to salamanca let's have a look at what was going on um at Salamanca, there's a the returns for the French army show that while all of the divisions of the left wing lost artillery, lost their lost some of their divisional guns, McHugh never lost any. He um, he retained all of his guns, so he escaped from this disaster um, with all of his eagles and all of his guns. And uh, it it begs the question of well, how did that happen? How did that happen? And uh, that's uh the other thing that seemed odd to me was um when you look at oman's map of the uh, of the battle you can see McCune here um uh to the southwest of um of uh, the uh, the village and um yet. Yeah, Albert de Tourmes is is to the southeast. So, what Amani is having us believe is that Leith attacked up that, up the Montezan, hit and destroyed McCune, and instead of them running away south, they ran away southeast. And that didn't ring true to me um, because we would. they would have missed Ferry's position and, and all of this. So uh, that de- that raised a significant doubt in my mind.
3: So, folks, um, sorry, if you could just go back to the, the previous one. Um, this is the classic map from um, Sir Charles O'Man's history of the Peninsular War. It's probably been the basis of, of many uh, a reproduction, frankly, um, over time. And you can see um, top left, Ardea Tahada. that's where Pakenham's um, division start out and then they end up uh, striking sort of Thomia, sorry, Tomia, full in the face. Um, for more details on this, that I did a live stream on Salamanca, you can go back and, and watch that. Um, but this is the classic thing, and, and there is a, a marked gap between Tomia and McCune's division, which has often sort of left me with a little bit of a head scratch in in itself because. McCune doesn't feel particularly isolated when you're stood there and this is always the value of walking the ground when you're stood there you look at where McCune is in relation to where the rest of the army is and he doesn't feel anywhere near as isolated as tomia would have been is that something that strikes you
2: yeah i mean i think the um uh the the distance that that between Tommy Ayers and McCune is huge and um uh clearly that the the big problem here is that Tommy Air was allowed to go that far uh, ahead um because had he kept closer to McCune um uh, and in fact McCune definitely I'm, I'm pretty sure McCune wasn't there um but uh if It had kept closer to the rest of the French divisions and and followed their normal deployment, uh, which again I'm going to come on to later. Um, Wellington wouldn't have had an opportunity to exploit. And so, uh, where he was when Wellington decided he needed to attack is another matter. I mean, uh, this I've I, I not studied Domiers at all, so I can't comment on how that. Uh, how. Why he's shown there, but um uh, it's certainly worth understanding in a bit more detail but yes the the whole point about the Leith's axis of attack is I think one of the the key uh elements of this that's made me wonder were well, has has this been misunderstood? and in terms of that
3: gap, there's often a lot of debate about whose fault should Marmont have kept. His divisional commander's on a tighter leash. Is this Tommy Air getting a little bit too overexcited and um, overextending and, and overplaying his hand? What's your read of, of why this ends up
2: um, becoming a, an issue? I mean, it's guesswork to a certain extent. I, but my belief now is that um, Marmont felt that all he had to do was appear to threaten Wellington's uh, flank and Wellington would retire because it happened loads of times before. And um, I suspect... um...
0: In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches and fine jewellery, Rebag is the answer.
2: Uh, that sense of, uh, I don't know whether you call it complacency or not, has infected um, uh, Tomies. And he just thinks, obviously, if all I'm doing is demonstrating that we'll go that way, the further I go, the better it is. Uh, And the interesting thing is, as uh, Marmont himself said in his memoirs, McCune actually said we should be attacking Wellington, pinning him in position. Uh, and and then attack his his flank and Marmon didn't want to do that uh, because this is easier to get Wellington to move is easier it worked so far um, so I suspect that and, and as I say if you were going to if it was an an offensive move uh, you'd have Tommies on the other side of the hill so he couldn't be seen
3: mm. absolutely um, we alluded to this earlier there there is a little bit of um, friction, shall we say, between McCune and Marmont. Um, you've talked a couple of times now about how Marmont almost dismisses this idea of, look, let's pin Wellington, let's kind of, uh, let's go for it. Uh, that idea gets dismissed out of hand, and so there are two things that immediately come to mind in terms of questions. One is why is the relationship fractious, and the second is has Marmont kind of, I don't want to say sort of lulled himself into a false sense of security, but is, is he sort of in the wrong mindset by this point in the sense that he's not willing to take the fight to Wellington, perhaps for reasons related to what's happened to the French army when they have attacked Wellington on ground of his own choosing. And as a result of that, he's missing opportunities
2: I yeah I I, I mean it's difficult to, difficult to say I think one of the things I would urge people to be cautious of is putting too much weight on what Marmon said in his memoirs because um, he uh, said different things at the time so his anger at um at is a more is a later invention. Because he, he felt he obviously needed somebody to blame, and uh, uh, and, and is dead, so that was no good blaming him. And uh, the uh, what you'll see later on is uh, he, he learned um, when when the when it became obvious that this was a big deal, um, this defeat was a big deal, uh, that he changed his story about McCune, as I'll show very. Very uh, clearly in a minute, but I, I suspect he, he was—he he was naturally expecting Wellington to retire as soon as he showed he was going to outflank him. He just botched the outflanking maneuver and uh, uh, and didn't get the divisions moving together. Uh, because one of the things that um, uh, again you don't see much about is the. Uh, what is the normal deployment of the French divisions? Were they lining up for this? And uh uh they 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 work from the senior, the lowest number division on the right. So it's very simple, whereas the British system is more complicated with the French is simple. The the senior division goes on the right, which is why Foy was over on the other flank, and the junior division is on the left. And so what it should have been is Tomier's, uh brenier's uh corps which is uh, led by taupin and then McHugh so uh so what's what this is showing is um uh, the 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 order of battle under uh, less mature than it should be and uh, arguably Tomier should not have marched off that far without brenier next to him or Taupin's division next to him Mm-hmm. Sixth Division. the the other thing if i can just go on is the other thing that's interesting about mccune's division at salamanca is a lot of their losses um were actually focused on the first uh brigade uh, uh brigade which would have been in the front line and um this is important for two reasons um one is actually the second brigade this is even after the end of the battle the second brigade still uh, se- a, a morfos brigade is still uh, okay um while the um the 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 losses of um, donald's uh, fir- uh, first brigade are like each of the regiments lost a third of the losses of the division so two-thirds of the losses of the division are in that first brigade and only one third in montfort's brigade and this has important um uh, implications when you come to interpret what marmont said about mccune so marmont said that mccune extended himself well that's not what this shows. What this shows is that McCune deployed his division, as he should have done, as is required, which is the 1st Brigades in the front line and the 2nd Brigades behind them as their support. And uh, uh, there are other elements that, that show that. So all of this sort of added up to uh, this does not compute. Uh, let's have a look in more detail at what was going on.
3: I'm just gonna run through these numbers um for the sake of those who are listening to this by the audio the, you know the radio show as it were um so what we've got here are casualties for McCune's fifth division um and if you break it down by units, so effectively the front line, the first brigade as Leith hits them, would have been the fifteenth lean and the sixty sixth lean in terms of casualties for the fifteenth lean. 17 officers, 590 men, that gives you a total of 607. The 66th lean, 10 officers and 578 men, that gives you a grand total of 588, as I'm sure you can work out because I'm sure you can add 10 to most numbers in your life. The second brigade, however, is Montfort, so that's the 82nd lean and the 86th lean, and their casualty stats are much lower, which is the point that Gary's just been making. So 10 officers lost in the 82nd and 262 men, so grand total 272. And then the 86th lean, five officers and 265 men, total 270. So you can really see the discrepancy there. The the 2nd Brigade is losing, frankly, um, fewer men than a single regiment in the 1st Brigade. So there's a massive disparity, which is a really good point. You know, it suggests that, yes, the the first brigade took an absolute hammering, but the second brigade, not so. And if they haven't been routed, which is what these figures would suggest, this is not obviously the losses aren't insignificant, but they're not consistent with everybody's running away and the British heavy cavalry are sabring them as they run then it's a really good point that it doesn't add up literally in in the case of figures
2: particularly when you when you uh see look at it in the view of marmont's later accusation uh, that mccune extended himself um uh, which would imply he put the two brigades side by side and, and filled the gap and of course the the uh, Sir Extendit, which uh, Marmont actually wrote, has been interpreted in lots of ways. One of which is McCune marching down uh, the uh, Monte de Zan, uh which doesn't—it's not really good uh, inter- uh, translation of the French, part from anything else.
3: No, you're dead right. And and as I alluded to earlier, actually, you go stand on the Monte Tizan and you look at where he is, and you go, no, no, he hasn't um it's it's absolutely not the case, so okay, we've got lots of um lots of uh, points here, but you've also flashed something else up on the screen. talk me through this
2: well, I mean this is the the summary point, which is um the the McCune saved all four of his eagles, all of his divisional guns, and this is not consistent with the accounts of him running away back to. Um uh Albert Thomas. And and a particular interest here about the guns is his chief of staff's account, um Girard. Um essentially, I mean, uh, in the, the best book on Salamanca, uh, Professor Muir's book, uh, he gives um Girard's account and uh uh but actually doesn't give it a huge amount of credence. And uh But it depends what context you see it in. Now, Girard, he's he's a Frenchman writing his views, and some people get upset because at uh, Villa Muriel, where he was injured in the shoulder, he recites the conversation he had with McCune uh, on that occasion and people are saying well he couldn't have possibly remembered that well he as had his shoulder hit I suspect he might have done and that you know he's a bit he's excitable and all of this and and true enough at the beginning of his account on, on Salamanca he claims that he predicted the disaster which is never a, never a good starting point for an uh, authoritative account however uh, what he goes on to say uh, is that um, he took particular attention of the, the, the divisional guns. He formed the divisional guns into a uh, uh, into a square with the caissons. Uh, just like seeing the cowboy and in Indian films, uh, and he defended the guns against the onrushing uh, British cavalry. Now, when you read it per se, uh, without actually looking at the context. Um, you it it sounds fanciful. This guy's just blowing his own trumpet. But the fact of the matter is McCunes was the only division who got away with all of their all their artillery. And so I think his account, which I mean, dare I say it us Anglo-Saxons tend to look at the French uh, excitable natures as something to be less credible. I um, uh, actually needs to be looked at again, I think, um, and uh, because it has big impacts uh, later on in the day because he says, he claims, that at Albert de Tormes, uh, when night had fallen, McCune is on the bridge and, uh, and the, no other senior officers around. He and McCune are on the bridge honouring the last thousand men to hold the bridge against the uh, uh, Allied pursuit. Now, again, the the key thing to remember is how late that is. When Oman has uh, uh, McCoon's division being beaten, it's, it's about five o'clock in the afternoon. Darkness at uh, that time of day then is 11 o'clock at night. So it's six hours later and the whole timeline is, um, uh, also uh, um, needs thinking about when you're thinking about uh, some of these things. Ev- everybody talks about the ferries rearguard, for instance, taking place as dark darkness fell. Mm-hmm. You don't see many people say, "Well, when was that then?" Well, actually, it was 10 11 o'clock at night. So what was happening in the five hours before? And uh, and that five hours was enough time for McCune to rally his division and. Uh, uh, and use it uh later on in the in the day um, that is a so really
3: it, good point and i've been very guilty of that i've never thought about exactly the timings um i think in my head i would kind of assumed it must have been somewhere between about nine and ten yes. last stand and you know you've, you've no. looked into it i haven't looked at the, the time of nightfall there in that part of the world on that particular no. date um that's A really interesting um, you, point. You
2: have to, you know, by the if you believe the uh conventional stories, by half past seven at night, McCune's division would have been across the bridge at uh Albert de Tourmes and gone. Uh, yet there he is, last thing at night, 11 o'clock at night, standing on the bridge. And yeah, you can say Girard is is uh making it up, but why would he? He didn't mm-hmm. think McCune was a Marshall nay uh he didn't think he was a great man but he's placed him there and uh so but that's that's a long long way ahead of where we need to start which is so what did um uh marmot actually want mccune to do
3: okay well yeah let's start there
2: let's start there so if you if you go back to um oman's map again and and what i've highlighted here is the uh the village, village uh, the village. Uh, village, the position to the, uh, I've said to the southwest, it's actually west-southwest of the village the, where McCune is supposed to be. And I've, I've highlighted the greater Arapel. Um There's a piece of land in between which uh, Oman's got nobody in. And um, uh, you have to ask yourself what goes on there. And this shows the modern topography uh, of uh, of Oman's map, if you like. so i've I've placed McCune's um, and Leith's divisions on it little boxes, the actual sizes that they would have deployment sizes that the uh, battalions would have occupied. And uh, as I said earlier on if if uh, Leith uh, attacked south, you'd have expected the 5th the, the Division of the Army of Portugal to retreat south. One of the things I want you to notice is um, between uh, McCune's supposed position and uh, the Greater Arapel, there are actually a series of low level ridgelines that run down to the village. And uh, on the extreme end of one is the position that the 122nd uh, linear occupied. And uh, I think when you look at what Marmont said, and I'll read this out uh, on the 25th of July, Marmont wrote to the King of Spain, uh, and this is his first statement of what went on I caused it, the tableland, to be occupied by the 5th Division and the Reserve of Horse Artillery, with strict orders to confine themselves to the taking of the tableland. Uh, McCune broke and drove off the English detachment who occupied the Heights. I thought it necessary to bring up Freck's troops to act with vigour in support of General McCune. And I've underlined this so that General McCune, notwithstanding the brilliant success which he had obtained, was forced by superior numbers to retire. So this is what he said about McCune straight after the battle. Um, And that of course does not match what anybody thinks mccune did uh, on that day and it certainly doesn't match what uh, what marmont later wrote
3: i i'm still sorry if we can just go back to that i'm still fixated on general mccune broke and drove off the english detachment which occupied the heights yeah well that doesn't get featured in any story what's he referring to though? Good
2: question good question Good question. It, it, it's, um, I mean there were the there was the race for the Greater Arapel, but mm. the, the French got there first. Exactly. Uh, so they, I, they I had think,
3: occupied those. I think I mean, what
2: he's talking about is the piece of land that I highlighted the map, which is uh not the Montezan, it's the uh the piece of land immediately adjacent to it. You have to
3: question also well, that doesn't work either because you've got the fourth, the British 4th Division attack, which obviously gets broken. doesn't get broken by McCune's men, but that's not the point. You know, to what extent has something got conflated in Marmont's mind? The guy has just been injured. You know, you have to kind of consider every eventuality, but that's not consistent either because the British hadn't occupied any heights for that to be the case. So that's... That's a bit baffling, all things well, considered. Well, the
2: particularly baffling thing is that so that General McCune, notwithstanding the brilliant success which he had obtained, so McCune Marmont left that battle not thinking that McCune had done anything wrong. No, if anything, McCune's the hero of the hour on that occasion. Yeah, mm. Dog. and on by the um, six days later. Marmont wrote to the Minister of War and the position started to uh, um, uh, shift slightly. I gave orders uh, to the 5th Division to take position on the extreme right of this plateau, the fire from which was perfectly connected with that from Arapalese. The 5th Division, after taking the indicated post, extended to the left without any motive nor reason. And here you start to get the extended well again so extend it is is not move it it means deploy um and uh deploy the two brigades or or deploy skirmishers and so we started to move um and then we the other thing we have about um uh mccune is uh napier in 1836 um Says that McCune maintained a noble battle during the withdrawal, which is interesting for a couple of reasons. Now, it, he, he clearly, from the account, gets confused with Bonnet and, and Ferry's divisions at different times, perhaps. But the thing that's interesting about this is that this is at the same time as some of the French accounts uh, of the battle were being published. And around that time, they were all blaming Thomieres. McCune never got a mention as being the author of the defeat at, um, uh, at Salamanca and so you know at around 1830 nobody's dressing McCune up as the as the idiot um, but I want to come back to this point that Marmont made I gave orders to the fifth division to take a position on the extreme right of the plateau and uh, remember that for later and this is what is in the memoirs, uh, which is a lot of text. I won't read it all out. And McCune uh, made this point that I referred to earlier, that, we should, that they should be attacking uh, the, the uh, British. And, uh, and Marmont's then telling him he's he's got to keep calm. McCune, a man of little capacity, though a very brave soldier, could not contain himself when he's in the presence of the enemy. And he then talks about an incident in the, on the passage of Juro some days before uh, which he claimed compromised the army it didn't uh, it didn't even get mentioned in Oman uh, he, he, all that McCune did is he he went half a mile further down the road than he should have done um, uh, but there was no threat. the British had left a long time before. so you can see here having left had little regard for his obedience I determined to go there myself. And having taken a last look at the top of the road, you get the story of him uh being wounded uh by the uh, cannon fire. So he's he's making the point that he needed by this time, so this is uh 1850s, that he he felt he needed to, to uh go and uh, keep control of McCune
3: And there's always been one significant thing that I've never entirely bought about this which is, you know, oh, I need to ride off and deal with this myself. Um, does he, though? Because he's, uh, th- for me, this is something that you can say, se- he's got AIDS. He can send a rider off and say, I need you to do this instead. He doesn't necessarily need to be on the ground at this point. So I've always kind of regarded this Oh, uh, well, I was about to mount my horse and ride off and solve and save the entire day thing as something that you can talk about with the benefit of hindsight, because he knows that after that point everything really goes badly wrong. So I've always bought considered that as saving face, but others, of course, disagree. But what's your read of it?
2: Well, I think the the interesting thing is that he doesn't say here, I was going on my horse going ride right after Tommy is. Um, and because uh, that's where he should have gone. Mm-hmm. Um or that and they probably did send an aid, I don't know. Um the point is he uh, if if uh, it's right that McCune was on the um on the, the end of the plateau, he and and was advancing towards uh the Araplays village, then he that's only a short ride down. I mean it's right next door. French leaders were, you know. You know, Wellington had a lot in common with him in some regards. Um, he tends to be compared to, to Napoleon, but most French leaders would have got on their horse and rode to the 150 yards, 200 yards down to say, hang on, you need to be doing this. The French leaders, by and large, are lead from the front type of guys. So I don't disbelieve that. Mm-hmm. The question I would ask is, why don't you go and chase after Tomies uh, an hour before? That is a, a very... And the answer is because Tommy S was doing what he wanted him to do. Yeah, it's
3: a really good and really interesting point. Gary, we've already covered a whole host of head-scratching. That was alliterative. I wasn't anticipating that, but a, a whole host of head-scratch, head-scratching scratch head points. I, I can't find a, an H on which to end that sentence. Um, thank you for sharing all of this with us. Obviously, we're not done yet, but we are out of time for what will become episode one of this on the podcast folks if you want the whole thing well you're going to need to head over to uh, youtube if you want to listen to it right here right now it, the rest of it will be released um, in a few days time so you can look forward to hearing that if you want to listen to the audio version or the whole v- video file is available right now on the napoleonic wars channel Gary, massive thanks for this. It's been an absolutely fascinating start and I'm really looking forward to us continuing the conversation very shortly. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. Much love to all my Patreon supporters and shout outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Colson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen. Rob Kotlin, Hugh Brennan, Alistair campbell Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Ansgum, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramus, Anthony Gumball, Andrew Wright, Anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich Dicardo, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick. Ted Andrews, David Malinsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Foggy, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Adam Green, Tim Day, Sam Moore, Wyatt Pollock, Armin Darbin, Carol Dixon-Smith, Paul Gasek, and Roland Shark. And the admirals, John Haynes, JC Kaiser, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Led Campbell, Graham Swidenbank, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan... Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walcom, Steve Carter, and Clemens. I'll be back very soon, but until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars Pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>
1: Folks, a quick reminder of what I said at the start. If you want to enjoy twenty percent off, Glory Is Fleeting, the book in which you'll find Gary Wells's chapter that we've talked about in this episode, please go to hellion.co.uk, select Glory Is Fleeting, and then on checkout, type in the following discount code: Glory twenty three. That's G L O R Y two three, and you will enjoy twenty percent off. Glory is fleeting. Big thanks to Hellion for arranging that discount code, and I hope you enjoy reading a little bit more about Gary's work. Bear in mind that part two is incoming very soon.
0: Hold up.